got a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk, and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Jason Cement of Get Visible is a web marketing SEO expert with a law background and a ton of startup experience. Our fast-paced conversation is all over the map when it comes to topics and focus, and because of Jason, it's a fascinating wild ride. As you listen to this interview, as a small business person, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Jason. Hopefully you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. In my book, if you open it up, there's no sentence that goes into another page. Wow, and that's hard to do because you don't exactly know what the format's gonna be when you're writing it. I spend more time editing than writing because it was a personal challenge for me. Uh-huh. And I make sure that the pages are clean and easy and you don't have orphan text to going into another page. Well, since, it's a stupid thing. Since you brought up the book, what's it called? It's called I Need More Clients. Right. So what came first, the title or the book? Oh, the book came way before the title. Gotcha. Absolutely. What happened was, so I've been doing SEO since 97 before Google existed as a word. And Google even was my client in my e-commerce business. They bought every product that we sold because apparently they were scanning every magazine in our catalog for their wordplay, you know, building their algorithm. What happened was about 2006, 2007, I would say, we started growing the agency and I would bring people on and I would train them and teach them SEO, but then they would quit. And then I'd teach the next person. After three times, I'm like, it's taking me so much time to teach everything. I might as well just write this into a book and have a manual of operations and then they can just read the book and it'll explain to them what to do. And that became the book that we put out like in 2016. So what I had were all these notes and then I came up with this formula of I need more clients. So now that's becoming my brand because I have a second book coming. I need more patients. And then my third book will be I need more sales. And that defines my business. I have column one is service providers, column two is healthcare, and column three is e-commerce. Is there really a big difference between those three? They think they're different. Who's they? The clients. Well, e-commerce is very different than the first two, but in terms of doctors versus surgeons, it's pretty much the same thing. The difference will be that a patient will do a lot more research before hiring a doctor than someone who hires an attorney because the attorney, that's a black box. Nobody understands what the attorney really does other than the fact that they know their industry. For a surgeon, yeah, he cuts you open, he pulls out a cyst or whatever he's doing, and he heals you. The difference is is that there's so many factors that go into surgery that you can take on yourself to learn and understand, well, does this guy use laparoscopic? Does he use a knife? Does he, how long has he been doing it with lasers? Does he use the Da Vinci machine? There's a lot of things that you can fool yourself into learning. It sounds like your I need more sales and I need more patients is going to talk more about converting a inquiry into a paying customer versus I need more customers, which is getting them onto your website. No, no, no. It's, it's all the same. It's getting them to the website. Starting with the foundational problem, which is I need traffic. But I don't want to say traffic. Say I need revenue. So the starting point, if you're a lawyer, is I need clients. How do you get clients? Multi-step. Let me build a better website. Let me write some content. Let me get it ranked. Let me drive people to the site somehow. Then once they're on the website... How can I convert them? Do I follow up with them? Do I build a better mousetrap? Do I give away something free on the website when they're on there so that I get their email and then I can email them? It's like a whole sequence of events. I find that one of the big problems with customers directing their own advertising, and sometimes when it's just customers talking to professionals to direct their own advertising, 
is that they're often clueless as to what their actual product is. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes. And it's interesting. We signed two contracts last week because of that problem. I met a guy. I'll put his name out there. Why not? His name is Joe Martin. He's from Chicago. He's also in our provisors world. And he helps businesses figure out who they're selling to and what they're selling. Interesting. That's his thing. He does other things, but this is the one thing. He's a TEDx speaker. I don't speak in his language. Like you said before, we figure things out, you and I. We intuit things. And we probably can end up at the same place that he's at. But he goes through a whole journey. And so I referred him five people. Four of them hired him. Three of them have already gone through his six-week process. And two of them signed contracts with us now, with both of us for 12 months. Why? Because I said to them, you're not ready for me. You need to figure out what you're selling and who you're selling to. Gotcha. Went through his six-week thing. And they're like... This was amazing. Now, what kind of businesses are they in? If you were just to give me a broad stroke. Right now, one of them is a home decor company. It's called Hemsley, H-E-M-S-L-Y.com. Brand new. And we're literally getting started tomorrow. So using them, I hope they don't mind the plug, Hemsley. Yeah, and, right. right? But plug. their widgets that they're selling are what? Home decor products? Like, like yeah. uh, knickknacks or furniture or... Yeah, Plants, it's, uh, you know, things to go on your tables, right. knickknacks, things like that. What was their confusion? What did they, they, if you were to ask them who their customers were, what would they say off the cuff? They're competing with Crate and Barrel. They're competing with those types of companies, number one. But to just say I'm another Crate and Barrel, it's too big in terms of a conversation. So how do you nuance the difference between you and a Crate and Barrel? And I say there's other Crate and Barrels, but use them as the example. So number one, who am I positioning myself against? And number two is, who am I selling to? Am I selling to a family? Am I selling to someone who came out of college? Am I selling to a retiree? Who's my target, my first target customer? And you can have multiple prototypes, but you start with one and you branch out from there. So all of that, they had to figure out, do they want to have a lot of products in each category or a limited number? Do you remember the DAC catalog? Sure, love that. Right, that was great. That was a great, that's a great example to bring up. Go ahead. Right. And so they were like the blue blocker. They had this crazy catalog with no brand name merchandise. And they had huge amounts of text and pictures about the best audio receiver, the best watch and things like that. But they sold you on all that storytelling that they did. And they didn't have to have a lot of products. And they were the smarter image before the smarter image. I was going to say they attracted the people like me who just like gadgets, you know? Right. And it was low end. It wasn't high end stuff right. between smarter image and having nothing. So you could I get think you mean sharper stuff. image, right? Sharper image. Sharper right? image, right. So this company had to figure out what do they want to be. And so they went through his process to start. Now we're going to start with them and we're going to do all the marketing things to get people to the website. Right. But they weren't ready to send anyone to the website because they didn't know what their story was going to be. And then the benefit, of course, is the right people go to the website. So then you have a higher... Exactly. You have a higher conversion level to, to business. Right. Than that, exactly. right? And then is there time spent teaching them how to convert an, an inquiry into a client, into a paid customer? Yeah, yeah I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, sure. I mean, th- th- that's the Who worst. Does- you get someone there, they don't buy. So what, right. we, have, we have, and that's why we partner with Joe, because that's the area that he's going to focus on is the messaging and the conversion. We're going to focus on getting them there. And there's an integration. Both sides have to work together. But this way, we're big fans, Joe and I, of bringing the best players for each of the services that are needed, rather than trying to say we could do it all. 
So he, he can build a website and he can do other things that I do, but is he the best at each of those things? No. And so therefore he goes, I'm the best at this. I said it, I go, you are much better than me at this. So I want you to do this. And, and I sat in on the meetings with the clients, even though it wasn't my role yet, I didn't even have a signed deal with them, but I was like, you know what? They trusted me enough to hire him just on a phone call. Let me be part of the process. Plus I'll understand what they're going through and it will make my job much better as my team gets involved now to move them to the next stage. That's my thing. Do you have to spend a lot of money on a website to have it be a good website? No. I mean, it depends is, that, on is that a misnomer? Someone asked me today, he just hired us. He hired us today. And he goes, what do people spend a hundred thousand dollars on a website for like, as opposed to the 10,000 I'm going to spend today. And I said, well, you can have video, you can have interactive websites so that when you press a button, something happens that requires programming. Is it necessary? It depends. Some websites aren't selling anything. They're just like having a store in Rodeo Drive. They don't care so much about the sales. They care about the brand presence of being located there. Mm -hmm. So having a, a very expensive website might be important for your brand just so people know you spent a lot of money. I grew up, my dad always drove a Cadillac and he said, I'm a lawyer and people need to see that I'm successful. And in Miami Beach, driving a Cadillac was not like the Seinfeld Cadillac. It was like, it meant something, <laughs> you know? So today it's not a Cadillac. Today it's a, uh, a Tesla. Right. And it's a pen that writes upside down. <laughs> right. 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 And you can get away in California with driving a Tesla and not being seen as a jerk because it's green. But in other places you, 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 you make yourself too rich for the population because you're like showing off. So yeah, I, I know a, I have a friend who's a very successful person, has a ton of employees and as a result, and his employees are all, they're all, you know, warehouse, blue collar. He won't, although he loves nice cars, he won't drive, drive a nice car. He's afraid to show up to his see right. staff, see him making too much money. He's afraid. That's why I haven't gotten a haircut in eight months. <laughs> I'm in place to think I'm doing too well. No, I'm yeah, <laughs> that's not my excuse. <laughs> that was the opposite of that, is, is that he doesn't want to appear too successful to his team because obviously he's not paying them very well and he doesn't want them to. That's a different story. I thought you were going to say he bought each of them a Tesla because they did sell no, it. Yeah. I don't know that guy. Do I you actually know? want to laugh. My father-in-law bought a, a Sun America stock like 30 years ago mm -hmm. because he was in an elevator and he saw all the executives driving fancy cars parked outside the Sun America building. And he goes, if they're paying them that well, they're making a lot of money. And that was one of the top performing stocks for like a decade, purely because they drove nice cars. More intuition. Yeah. More intuition. Just picking up clues. Yes. Interesting. Yes. So um, you're all B2B. All of your customers are other businesses. What's the most common mistake you see people making in business? By the way, we're not only B2B. We still have uh, B2C clients. So we, we have e-commerce. Private people have websites? Well, I mean, they're companies that are selling to consumers. They're not just Oh, okay. But I mean, you, yourself, your company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, in that respect. What's the other business? I, I say like this, there's different categories of mistakes. Biggest mistake, I believe, is people who are experts in one thing. It's like we talked about before about people do research before hiring a surgeon, but they do less research when hiring a lawyer. So here, people think they understand digital marketing because they read a few articles about it and they've seen this stuff about search engines or social media. I have SEO for dummies on my shelf here. Somewhere. Right, exactly. And yeah. you're going to learn like enough to get a 50 on a test. You know what I mean? You can get a 50 <laughs> once. You're going to know more than half of what you need to know. But the difference between getting a C and getting a B plus or an A minus 
is dramatically different. And you got to hire a company that's consistently performing. They don't have to be an A performer. They got to be at least a B plus. Right. And so that's one thing. They don't also calculate what the true cost should be for something. For example, let's say you hire a company to do a service fee for $1,000 a month, whether it's posting social media or doing something on search engines. The odds are, if you're hiring an expert, just thinking like an expert lawyer, they, they want to make 300 bucks an hour, $500 an hour. If they're only charging you 100 bucks an hour, how much of an expert are they really at what they do? Right. Right. And if you're trying to save money, in order to make money, it doesn't make sense. So yeah, you don't want to spend more money than you have to, but if you're hiring an entire company and all they're giving you is, uh, and all they're charging you is $750, how much time are you really getting from someone who's thinking about your issues at a higher billing rate? And I find that to be, doesn't mean you need to spend five grand a month, but if you don't have a real investment into the results, you shouldn't expect the outcome to, to be so extraordinary. There's an old saying that says, it's better to spend more than you thought rather than less than you should. Today, it happened now. We closed a busy day. <laughs> wait, wait, take it easy. What happened? No, 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 this is funny. <laughs> she hired us. I'm not going to say who it is. doesn't matter. And she said, I'm spending double what I anticipated. Yeah. And I said to her, I want to tell you something. I'm charging you 50% less than I wanted to. And I was going to write you a note about it. And I decided not to because you were worth more to me because of the referral potential than having you as a client. So it made her feel better that she was spending more. Right. And the truth is she's spending the right amount for her business. She wants more than what she's spending. So she got lucky that I'm willing to do it for less because I made an investment decision that she's a client I want. And so it's worth it not to make as much money now because the long-term benefits will be worth much more. So I I actually turned down some business recently because um, they weren't going to be spending, they weren't committing to a long enough time to have a return. So it would have been me taking money and putting it in my pocket and them getting zero value for it. I wrote her a nice note and declined her business. And then I called her up because I thought, you know, if she doesn't understand that I'm being of service to her and being sincere, she might be insulted. So I called her up just to say, please understand your, if your budget isn't enough. It's I respect that, but don't spend less than you should. Cause it won't have any, you won't get any value from it at all. And I'll just feel like I'm taking your money. And I just, that's not how I want to be. That's not how I want to feel. I don't want to feel like someone who's just being a mercenary and I want to deliver value. And I don't think I can for, you know, you are a mercenary. I like that. Yeah. Well, I saw a graph that we used in one of our pitches and it showed the investment that the client and we on our end were making, and it was a, like a bar chart, but it showed that we weren't gonna make money until six months into the contract. Right. Because we were over-investing up front. Right. And so therefore we wanted a 12 month contract. So instead of playing games and saying, here's a setup fee, yeah. here's you know, different things. We said, you know what? This is what the value is gonna be over the course of 12 months. You're gonna have a fixed, investment every month, but we're investing. So if, if things go as planned, we'll start making money after month six, but you won't have a change in your cost. So you right. And so that's, that's, that's an interesting way. I mean, it, otherwise known as a customer acquisition cost, by the way. That's true. You can look so, at that. so you can look, so you're investing in building your, your base of business. And, um, and I, and I, I like that approach, assuming that you're protecting yourself because you don't want to invest all that time and, 
you know, and have, have to drop you at four months. So do you okay. protect yourself with a contract at that point? Yeah, no, no, we have a contract. But the point is, right. instead of saying, let's do a three month contract and let's put a setup fee. Yeah. The, the nature of the conversation to say, it's not that we were different before, but now it's more official by showing that graph and showing the return to the customer. And it also showed where their revenues were going to be impacted. It, it changed the conversation because we we didn't used to sign 12 month contracts now i'm changing that there's still an out clause but we're changing the initiation of the relationship to already start in a long-term basis that's the idea and and preserve their cash flow so that they can utilize the money that we would initially be charging and say you can defer that to later use your money now for things that you might need that you're not spending money on. For example, pay-per-click advertising, maybe they're gonna front load some of it. So it just depends, so it was a change. Sorry to interrupt, Jason. I just wanna take a quick break. I'm exhausted from this conversation, so we'll be right back. You may remember Janice Miller of Miller Haga Law Group from our episode, Saving Nigel in season one. Miller Haga supports businesses of all sizes from large to small. No matter what phase your business is in, from startup to wind down, Miller Haga Law Group acts as your innovative general counsel. Their experienced team of lawyers will keep the gears of your business turning. If you want to minimize your liability while maximizing your profits with competent and efficient counsel, contact MillerHaga.com for more information. That's MillerHaga, H-A-G-A.com. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crises, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID conscious trainers to keep their members active even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to Special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. Document technology continues to be a challenge for businesses as they go back and forth from working remotely to working in-house. One of the challenges facing management is that documents need to be shared. They also need to be secured. There's privacy issues, there's access issues. Those are the types of things that keep people up at night. Mercury Document Imaging has been solving problems like these since 1982. We are in the unique position to leverage our years of experience with our tremendous resources to solve this and other similar problems. We do it economically, more importantly, we do it efficiently. So if you have issues that you'd like us to help with, please call 818-782-1221 or go to mercurydoc.com, M-E-R-C-U-R-Y-D-O-C.com. You are listening to Jason Cement and Joel Volk of Small BizCast. We're going to pick up where we left off. Thanks. So uh, what about values? How, do you think people bring their values to their businesses or do you think they check their values at the door? On the client side or, the, or, the, or our side? No, I know your side, but the client side. Do you see, you see people checking their value at the door? I'll give you an example. I know of a company that has a, is very religiously based in terms of their, it's who they recruit, who they do business with, so on. But they, they kind of turn their back on the ethics when Hi, it comes to- I'm, I'm Mike Lindell. Who's that? The My Pillow guy. He's got the Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never noticed it before I realized he was a Trump supporter. And now all his things, the cross is very visible. Oh, yeah. It always has been. Religious. I didn't know his last name, but I know who you're talking about. Oh, yeah, as long as I've been aware of that guy, he's had that big cross on his chest. I only noticed it recently. And, right. I've, always, and I've worn a mezuzah since I'm 17. Hmm. Maybe younger. 
You got bar mitzvah at 17? Exactly. <laughs> My dad always wore one. Still oh. wears So I, when the movie School Ties came out and there was this big anti-Semitic scene and he pulled the, I think the Jewish star out of a box. I, I came home that day and I said, I want to wear a mezuzah. It was both because to honor my father, right. and the other one because of that movie had an, it, I, I liked that moment. I mean, I already wear a big one on my head, but I like this one. <laughs> anyway, I think that they turn their back on, I don't think they, I think they deliver value to the customers and they don't screw anybody the customers with, but I think they turn their value on the employees where they turn their values off to the employees. And I always wonder, I'd love to, you know, I don't know them well enough to ask challenging questions of them, but I, but I, I, I wonder, first of all, I could be way off base. I'm just looking at it from the 30,000 foot view. Right. But I do think that there's, that values are something that, you know, you, you bring to the table and everybody draws a line of what's acceptable and what's not on their own. Right. But it seems to me you take care of your employees as though they're your own family. I, it's easier for me to replace customers than it is to replace employees. So I want my employees to be valued so I can make more customers. I'm just curious what you're, what you think about. Do people tend to check their values at the door in general, or do you think that they bring their values to their place of business? Most of our clients are pretty righteous. Do you think that maybe how you do business reflects your, your true values? Maybe that's the answer. Well, what I was going to say, my mom has a famous, not famous, a well-known line, water seeks its own level. Yes, right, right, right. Okay, and I think it, unfortunately, in the political world that we're in today, that really is true because people don't want to seek anything outside their level. Right. So people will have their echo chambers, and I was talking about it with a guy today from Israel who's American, but he lives in Israel, and, and um, I think in business, the back of the card quite often when you're in a referral-based business like I am, and I mean, anybody can... I don't have to be referral based, but the nature of my, our growth is through referral. Sure. And I think that what ends up happening, especially when you talk about provisors, no like, trust, refer, you end up attracting clients that resonate with your value system because otherwise someone's going to make the referral to someone else that they like. Right. So it's not so much that I'm the best designer or I have the best SEO or the best pay-per-click management or the best social media. It's not about the service. It's about the feeling that I give to the person who makes the referral that I can not just get the job done, but I'm a good guy to work with. I'm a good guy to give business to. Whatever the intangibles are, I believe it's that back of the card, goodwill type stuff that is what closes the deal or secures the referral, which is in another way of saying it is all about values because They take for granted that you know what you're doing. Now right. They have to choose who do I want to give the business to because uh, it happened this morning. Someone asked for a referral for a tax lawyer. I referred one. He wrote me back and he said, what about this other person? And I said, oh, I should have given you that person too because we're good buddies. So it just wasn't in my head. Right. But I, 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 and I like both of the people that I referred and they both know each other, which is the funny part. It was a given that they were both experts. Right. So um, one of the reasons I want to, I'm asking all these questions that are off topic from your business yeah. is because you are a CPA and you are a lawyer, right? Right. But so you have those, you know, quivers in your arrows in your quiver. 
but your heart, you're an entrepreneur. Business is really obviously your passion. And you don't have to even explain that to me because of how you make a living taking a much more difficult path than it would be to be a CPA or to be a, yes. a lawyer. And, I'm, and, and I can tell you that in my years of business, all the times that I, I suffered in business, I thought, why didn't I go to law school? Why didn't I go to law school? Because I, I would meet these lawyers. I would meet these lawyers and I was thinking, you know, I'm smarter than those guys. Right. They just went to law school and took a test. Right. I didn't do that. These guys are making a fortune and I'm suffering, you know? So what drove you to take the harder path? You know, it's really funny because for 20 something years, I had not thought about this. But when I was in fourth grade, I lived in Miami Beach. There wasn't, there was one kosher supermarket that had opened sometime when I was in elementary school. So I had an aunt in Brooklyn that would send me boxes of chewing gum that you couldn't buy in Florida. It was kosher. It was called Chappies, I think. And it wasn't necessarily good, but it was kosher. So it was good enough. And I used to sell it to my friends in school. <laughs> okay. And I would, my dad would have people constantly coming to visit him on Saturday afternoon because we were Orthodox, but none of his friends were Orthodox. So they couldn't call him. They would come over Saturday afternoon. He played gin rummy. He would talk about real estate, all the things you're not supposed to do on Shabbat. He did on the, you know, talking side. Hey, at least he didn't drive, but he didn't drive. It's okay. So I understand it's okay. I remember when he was mayor of Miami Beach, the rabbi of the synagogue wanted to walk with him on a Jewish holiday to run for re-election and take him to city hall to re-register but he decided he wasn't running again. So like there's things you can do on the, uh, on the Sabbath. But right. I used to sit and listen to my dad's meetings and he was always an entrepreneur, even though he practiced law, he was buying real estate when he was like 19, he bought his first property and he worked in his family business when he was a kid. So it's, it's somehow it's in my blood. And only two weeks ago, someone asked me to write my bio and that's when I rediscovered one that I played chess as a kid and learn from a grandmaster and what that meant to me. And that I used to sell chewing gum and I didn't, see the funny thing is I don't care about money. Right. I literally don't care because religiously, I feel challenged to, like you said, the guy with the fancy car with his employees. For me, it's beyond just embarrassing the employees that maybe I have more. And it's not that I have much, but I don't feel comfortable using material things to uh, be better than other people right. right? or to appear better. I still want to have nice things, but I care much less about the nice things for uh, like, I'm not going to go buy an expensive suit. I'll get a custom made suit, but I won't spend a lot of money on it. So this, I don't, it's a rationalization, but I don't think money should be a way to separate me from somebody else. No, it sounds like you're still playing chess to be completely honest with you. It sounds like, you know, you're, you're, you're positioning yourself to, for a quality of life. And that's a chess game. Do I want, you know, it's, you're making moves to give yourself the quality of life that you want to have. And because you've got, you've got a lot of talents and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, pedigree, you can, you have options. You have a lot of pieces on the board. Um, so you can, you can play the pieces as you need to. But most entrepreneurs are motivated to make the money. They want to buy. I know people who sold their businesses for seven, eight figures. And the first thing they did was they bought the car, the yeah. $200,000 car. They bought the big mansion. They bought the second big mansion. They bought these things. And I'm not, 
degrading or diminishing what they did because you know what you work so that you can do things but those calculations are not in my arena i they, those things are not it's not that they're not important to me i would never allow them to be important to me because i think they go against where i am in my own religious consciousness it doesn't mean again i'm not walking around like a pauper even though my wife will always say that you know i i'm a, I'm a train wreck but the fact of the matter is i'm not really motivated from making money so i could spend it i may i want to make money because i got to pay the bills and give to charity and mm -hmm. do the things that are necessary but the extra things are not my motivation the motivation is like you said in the beginning it's in my blood mm -hmm. so like for example i love creating ideas I have no interest in executing them. Right. Okay. I don't even want to own. <laughs> that's a hard work. Hard work. That's well, hard work. That. I don't have pride of authorship or ownership because yeah. ego, meaning I can give you the idea and you go do it. Yeah, I would like to make money from it. That's fine, but I don't need to be the front man. It's not necessary. I enjoy it. I it's not that I don't have an ego, but I'm aware to know when the ego is playing games with me. Right. That's the thing. So I'm always I'm always in a balancing act between am I being authentic or am I being a poser to my ego or something like that. And that's we're talking privately, but yes, it's public. But the truth of the matter is, we're trying to be real. It's always a balancing act. And there's a a person named. Uh, Simcha Bunam, which is a Polish name. I don't know what his real whole name was, but he was the leader of a certain sect of Jewry in Poland in the middle eight, early to the middle 1800s. Yeah. And my friend is a publisher and he, that was supposed to be his first book. It's called The Quest for Authenticity. Mm -hmm. It's about the life of this person who was a pharmacist, but he ended up becoming the leader of Polish Jewry in, for that sect. Yeah. And it took 10 years for this person to write the book that my friend was publishing. And he finally published the book. And I went to Israel on vacation and the author was there. We had an hour sit down with the author who wrote this book after he finally finished it. Yeah. My favorite book on many levels in terms of nonfiction serious. And the thing about this pharmacist, quasi rabbi, whatever you want to call him, is his whole thing was in every moment, are you being real? If you're praying, are you being, it was a little bit too much, but the thing was, I don't want to live through life through someone else's lens. And so you're constantly evaluating if the actions you're taking are authentic to who you're supposed to be, who you want to be. So, so is it, is it a different version of Viktor Frankl's man's search for meaning? It's very different. The search for meaning is a great book, which I also have and it's not the same the search for meaning is more about how you go through madness like he did and you can survive and what he teaches you is that it's relations with other people and it's giving and stuff like that mm -hmm. this authenticity is about yourself it doesn't mean it's not a selfish thing it's a it's a self thing it's who are you i learned from a guy in in boston sergi uh uh Oh crap, I forgot his name and we did a podcast, but he taught me that there's a thing called predictive index. Right. Okay. And that's like the, the disc assessment, but predictive index is something you do with another test that he does. And what he said is 
there's this notion that you have a real self and then you have a self that you project to the world that you think the world wants you to be. So you're, it's like loci in the Star Trek, you know? You now have, I know a lot about Star Trek and I have no idea what you're talking about. What's loci? So, remember loci was the uh, Frank Corson character who was black. Oh white, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah, so yeah. You have two selves constantly at battle between who you really are. Right. And you need to be. And predictive index is a series of tests that helps you to evaluate the people who work for you, that's what it's really designed for, to help them get into balance. Because if you can get them into balance with those two selves, you can get maximum output out of them. So, so I recently read a letter from Kurt Vonnegut to some students, I think he was in his 80s at the time, and he was basically advising students to just go create. And then once you've created it, don't worry whether it's good or bad, even then you can even destroy it once you're done right. creating it because the act of creating something has lessons and wisdom and joy all on its own, whether anybody looks at it or not. So if someone looks at it, then you're worried about them telling you whether it's good or bad. You like, it's like, you know, singing in the shower versus singing in public, just have the joy of the song. And I, I read it recently and I thought, boy, why didn't I read that when I was 10 years old? Cause that would have been such a great, inspirational letter to read and to understand that it's okay to fail as long as you're trying. It's okay to express yourself as long as you're expressing yourself and being yourself. And it sounds a little bit like what you're describing about the authenticity. So I'm going to plus one you as Richard K says. From <laughs> and I'm going to say, I like what Kurt wrote, but I also don't like that you have to be able to handle criticism. I do not. Exactly. I think it's so part of critical thinking. It's part of why people who study Talmud do really well in law school because they can see two sides of a picture. They can see the flaws in their arguments and they have to own them. Mm -hmm. If you can't handle the criticism, you're walking around flawed. That's my real belief. Right. And, and I'm going to fight you. doesn't mean I can't handle the criticism. I may not agree with you, but I don't internalize it. I'm not, I don't need to go to therapy because somebody screamed at me or tore me apart or whatever, because I think, it's not the most important thing in life, but it, like it's the Viktor Frankl thing. I think you have to really be in touch with truth, a pursuit of truth, higher truth, if you will. And if you are always pursuing that, then the criticism is not, it's not whether it's good or bad. It's, is the criticism valid? Is, it, it, is there a problem? I don't have to, I don't have to build the scaffold of, of my truth. I guess you'd call it these days. What is the real truth? Right. Alternative yeah. facts is the thing you're talking about. Can you be strong enough to sustain? Yeah. Now, of course, there's no such thing as absolute truth. But the point I'm making is that I think that relationships would be much better if people could handle more than their own truth. Yeah. So um, it's funny because when tying this back to business a little bit, when, when, when entrepreneurs have ideas, they often bring it to their family and friends and bring up their ideas. And they, and their friends will always tell them why it won't work. And I always call those people's nose noisemakers. You know, I think those noisemakers get in the way, but you're right. You do have to listen to what they have to say. And if they may be right about certain elements, then your job as the entrepreneur is to navigate around those, those speed bumps or those roadblocks that keep you from that. They, they may be pointing out to you, but you can really focus on those, uh, those noisemakers too much and keep you from moving forward. So it's definitely comes with a balancing act, I think, because you have to listen to it and you have to be confident in your, in your vision. And that kind of harkens me back to a book 
Uh, Howard Schultz wrote, wrote a book about his experience starting uh, Starbucks from a 10-unit operation to what it is now. It's called Pour Your Heart Into It. And he really talked about all the people telling him it'll never work. Right. And, and if you would have asked me, I would have been one of those noisemakers. You want me to pay how much for a cup of coffee that's really hot and really strong? And, you know, but his vision was his vision, was his vision and he, he moved on it. And obviously he's right and I'm wrong. So here's, I'm going to say two things because we're going to close down pretty soon, is number one, that you shouldn't be asking the family members as much as you should be asking the people who know the business you want to go into, if you can trust them. So you need to ask people with experience in the arena that you're going into. That's number one. And a lot of people don't make enough effort doing that. Right. So that's number one. But number two is, and you can see this now politically, you have to be careful to know the agenda or the bias that the person you're asking brings with them. It's really important. I used to not think so much about the messenger because let's just look at the message. Know from whence they came. Well, unfortunately, people bring unconscious bias, which is not a big thing in diversity conversations, and people bring conscious bias. And so therefore, if the person is unable to put that aside, it's like the, the Amy Barrett stuff. Yeah. She's able to put aside her religious viewpoints in court. And her answer is yes, because I, what I do personally has nothing to do with what I do professionally. And granted, everybody brings certain bias, but she's aware of it. So she is pursuing the higher truth. That's what we're supposed to believe. So here, if you're the entrepreneur and you're going to people that know what you're doing, you know, that have experience, great. But if you're asking advice and you're, exposing yourself to a negative viewpoint because you didn't check that person's history. Let's say they have five failed businesses. They're probably not the right person to talk to if they weren't successful before because they have, you know, a history of failure that's got to inform their outlook on taking risk. Now there's a wise crack about the president of the United States here that I'm going to let, I'm not going to go into, but I'm dying to. It's okay. (laughs) Uh, Tomorrow, there might be a different answer. <laughs> so the point I'm making is yeah. that, you know what it's if like? I, if I, if I, I would go to my mom and give her my, my opinion, right. you know, she'd tell me how wonderful I am and I'm special, but everybody else knows the truth. So <laughs> There you go. You know what I would say? And probably you share this with me. I'm known, thankfully, to have the ability to listen to someone's situation and give a assessment that is not filled with my own personal bullshit. Yeah, yeah. You're a very realistic, honest thinker. There's no right. I may not have the right answer, but I'm definitely known to be good at counseling somebody because I don't bring my stuff into the equation. Right. Not not when it's serious. If we're just, you know, putzing around, that's a different story. But when it's serious, it's something that I can do. My dad had a sixth sense when he was much younger and really engaged, that he could do that for people because it requires someone to not be in the box that you're in in order to see outside the box. Right. Uh, Maybe that's the origin of when they talk about out of the box thinking. That's really the concept is how can, and not everyone has that ability. Right, no, that's a gift. Right? It's It's a a gift, gift, number one, to understand it. And number two, it's a gift to be able to communicate it. Well, that I need help with. (laughs) (laughs) Jason, uh, how do we get a hold of you and uh, what's the best way to, to reach you and see your work and get your book? So you can go to getvisible.com for my company website. 
my personal website I'm rebuilding right now, jasoncement.com, which will have things not related to Get Visible. Well, as you can tell, I really am exhausted after this interview with Jason. It's just so fast paced and we were all over the board and I hope you found it as fascinating as I did. Jason, thank you so much for being part of Small BizCast. And if you like to reach out to Jason, please do so by emailing jason at getvisible.com. You can also go to his website at getvisible.com. So it's jason at getvisible.com and getvisible.com. Next on Small BizCast, I will introduce you to a courageous entrepreneur, Shana Elson. She left a successful legal career to follow her dreams. Her business, Top This Chocolate, is as unique as she is, and I think you'll be inspired by her story. Here's a sneak peek. I ended up back in business school, just out of desperation, trying to get out of being a lawyer. The economy was down, there weren't a lot of jobs, and I wanted to transition into the dessert world. I wasn't sure if I was gonna start my own business or try to work at a corporate restaurant group or something like that. I came in, I started taking entrepreneurship classes. That was where the idea took hold because I took this idea that I had from my own experience of not having enough options in chocolate and I took Entrepreneurship 101 where they teach you how to flesh out an idea and figure out if this could be a viable business. Small BizCast drops every other Tuesday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thanks again for our sponsors, the Miller Haga Law Group and Mercury Document Imaging. And remember to support Fit for the Cause. And of course, thanks to my producer, Chaz Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for listening. Hot dog. It's a wonderful life.